Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Martin McDonough. You're listening to Film Spotting. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. They're probably abducting black people, brainwashing them, and making them slaves or sex slaves, not just regular slaves. See, I don't know if it's the hypnosis that's making them slaves or whatnot. But all I know is they already got two brothers we know, and it could be a whole bunch of brothers they got already. What's the next move? Hilarious, terrifying, and provocative. The surprise box office hit Get Out was perhaps the most 2017 movie of the year, but is it also one of the best? This week on the show, it's part two of our top 10 of 2017 countdown. We continue our conversation about the best films of the year with the Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips and Tasha Robinson from TheVerge.com in the next Picture Show podcast. All that and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to part two of our top 10 films of 2017 roundtable. We welcome back... Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune and from TheVerge.com and The Next Picture Show. Tasha Robinson, we left you in the studio for a week. You had lots of almond bars that Josh's wife baked. You look fairly refreshed, actually. You look like you're Surprisingly in Surprisingly nourishing, huh? If by refreshed you mean wired to the gills on sugar, <laughs> yes. We're gonna, well, this whole podcast is going to crash around the 15-minute point. Sugar high, boom. You know. I spent the entire week scratching at one of the glass windows rapidly like a gerbil. Yeah. And I still, I'm still not tired. <laughs> They're not phased by that here at BBC. <laughs> Happens a lot. This is going to be a great show. On part one of our roundtable, we focused on the films that were unique to our individual top 10 lists, our quirky outlier picks. Let's go ahead and recap those quickly for listeners who maybe didn't catch that show or haven't been to filmspotting.net to see those choices. Michael, which of your films have you shared so far that made your top 10? So far, my number 10, Call Me By Your Name, my number 7, Good Time, the Softy Brothers film, and my number 5, Rat Film, my favorite documentary of the year. Tasha. Uh, my number 10, the Wonder Woman, the comic book origin story slash kinky sex show, uh, Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman. My number eight, the Irish animated film, The Breadwinner. My number seven, the Japanese animated film, Mary and the Witch's Flower. And my number five, the Tanya Harding restoration film, I, Tanya. And my number four, the Strange and Mark Hamill starring uh, Brigsby Bear. At number nine, I have the Japanese animated film, Your Name. Blade Runner 2049 gets my number eight slot, The Breadwinner. 
Manor. I share with Tasha. I've got it at number seven. The Shape of Water, I have at number six. And The Beguiled falls at number five. My number 10 is Personal Shopper. My number nine, Wonderstruck. The Big Sick at number eight. And then at number five, Faces Places. So as you can tell there, we are not going in sequential order. We're not counting down. 10 to 1. We're jumping around a little bit. If you want to hear us talk about those films in more detail, you can find part one of our top 10 countdown at filmspotting.net or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your shows. We do have all of those choices listed at filmspotting.net slash lists as well. So those were the outliers. This week, it's what we're calling the consensus picks. And in every case but two, these are movies that made at least two of our lists. So there's some agreement And even if a couple of them only had one of us who chose them, they just feel like they belong in a larger conversation about the year in cinema. We're going to start that conversation about the year in cinema with an opening salvo from our producer. He's done this the past couple of years, and I didn't prepare for it at all. But you guys are smart, and you guys are raring to go, and of course have insightful things to say. The question is, what film that didn't make your top 10 do you most hope isn't forgotten by audience of the future who only have your list to guide them. Michael. Hmm. Good question. Mm. <laughs> it is. I like it. I, li- I like it. And I would probably pick the documentary Dawson City Frozen Time, which is a, a, a just a really splendid bit of historical research. And the, that's the movie I would show audiences of the future because, you know, they will not know what this film is even talking about without the existence of the film itself. It's a, it, it was a great discovery made in 1978 where all these cans of film were stuck in permafrost for all those for all those decades, and then you know miraculously saved these images of silent films from the early 20th century. And uh, I don't know anybody who's into any kind of film history has to has to adore this film. So I send that one to the future. Yeah, it's a good pick, Michael. I just watched it yesterday, and what I loved about the construction of the movie is you'll find these little experimental mini montages where they take recurring images from all these silent films and edit them together. And so there's even a sequence of just doors being opened in hallways. Right. But, but you it's see great them, editing. Great yeah, editing. Well, you see them one movie from the early 1900s after another, and it the music to accompany this is beautiful as well, and it becomes this, there are just these mesmerizing sequences throughout. So my pick is going to be one that almost squeezed onto my top 10, might have made it if I had a chance to give it another revisit, but I haven't seen it since Sundance, and it's Beatriz at Dinner from Miguel Arteta. You know I love my Cedar Rapids, Adam, and he's crafting something that's uh, much less of a straight-faced comedy here, but still does have its laughs. One of the best performances of the year from Salma Hayek as this masseuse who gets invited to her exceedingly wealthy client's business dinner when her car breaks down at her house. So she can't leave. And this woman just thinks, well, why not have her to dinner as well? The main guest being her husband's boss, who is very much a Trump figure. And you get this class conflict over dinner that becomes at once personal and moving largely because of Hayek's performance and also this larger metaphysical confrontation between empathy and a certain spirituality that the Hayek character has and just voracious consumerism on the part of this guy played by John Lithgow. And as I said, it I really do want to revisit it and see how it holds up, but I enjoyed it quite a bit at Sundance. Hmm. Tasha, what about you? Do you have? I think 
the my choice? F- my first thought would honestly be The Florida Project, which didn't quite make my list, but which I think is a, an exceptional film in a lot of ways. But I think we're going to talk about that in just a little here. It was a lister for some. So I'm going to go with one that didn't make uh, anybody's list, apparently, which is Pixar's Coco, which mm. to me, that film, first of all, it's it's just so visually gorgeous. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's lush and rich in a way that Pixar movies tend to be. But I think more importantly, in terms of of passing something on to history, it feels like such a turning point. This film and Moana feel like such turning points in the history of making mainstream, wide-release movies accessible to adults and children that respect other people's cultures and bring them in in order to to discover what's exceptional and, and memorable and deep and rich about them, but that also respect them as something more than a source to cherry-pick a, a few little exotic ideas and moments. Yeah. The d- people, the Mexican people that I've talked to about this film found it so emotionally moving because it spoke so deeply to their personal experiences and to their lives and families and to their history. But at the same time, it's a very entertaining and accessible movie. It's a lot of fun. It follows the Pixar model very well in a a way that makes it touching and emotional. But it's also, it just speaks to this bigger moment that we're trying so hard to have in so many different aspects of culture right now, where we're trying to acknowledge that maybe we've been telling the same stories over and over Mm -hmm. for decades, and we can get outside of that model. Yeah, it's a great choice. Might actually be the one I go with, but I'll throw one out. Just came to me here as I was glancing at the films that missed my top 10. What about Frederick Wiseman's documentary, Ex Libris, The New York Public Library? Because audiences of the future won't know what a book is. (laughs) And this will enlighten them. It will also enlighten them on times where people used to actually get together face to face in rooms and talk about issues. This is good. Yeah. I mean, You know, kids good. these days with their devices, they never get exactly. together face to face. I sound like the grumpy old man, don't I? Get off my lawn. That's where I'm going with my Frederick Wiseman choice. Maybe just a little bit. Well, we'll yeah. all be watching that movie on our phones while we don't talk to each other. <laughs> it's it'll true. Be, it'll be good enough. Well, speaking of the Florida Project, Tasha, let's get back to our picks with a special guest voicemail. Hello, everybody. This is Sean Baker, the director of The Florida Project, and my pick for best film of the year. Wait, wait, wait. Actually, I have a disclaimer before I say it. I've seen way too few films this year. I am still catching up. Being on a press tour and being part of the release of Florida Project has put me way behind on my normal film watching and so I have to catch up. Ask me the same question in about a week and a half, and I'm sure I might – well – I may have a different answer. But uh, right now, my pick for best film of the year goes to the beautiful BPM, Beats Per Minute, directed by Robin Campillo. I find it to be a a beautiful balance between docu-style storytelling, the uh, Parisian activists fighting the AIDS pandemic in the early 1990s with uh, very surreal and visually hypnotic set pieces and sequences adding up to a very emotionally visceral experience in the movie theater backed by you know beautiful performances and wonderful cinematography, wonderful directing. So that's my uh, pick. I highly recommend seeing it. If you still can see it on the big screen, see it on the big screen. And I'm quite upset that it wasn't selected as one of the, for the shortlist for the uh, best foreign film of the year for the Academy. Oh, well, though. 
it won't be forgotten anytime soon. And that's it. Uh, Happy holidays, everybody. And let's have a wonderful 2019. No, 2018? F***ing shit. Well, our thanks to Sean Baker there for his wonderful choice and his his eloquence, I suppose we could say. (laughs) Can we send him a calendar as a note of thanks? (laughs) Just to remind him what year. Yeah, just to help him out. He has been on a press tour. He made a great film. Josh, let's go ahead and cut Sean Baker some slack. We will talk much more. Some bleep slack. Yeah, some (laughs) bleeping bleep slack. We'll talk much more about the Florida Project later in the show. Of course, his previous film, Tangerine, made a few of our top 10 of 2015 lists. Michael, Josh, mine, Tangerine, also had the honor of winning the 2015 Film Spotting Golden Brick Award as our favorite underseen overlooked film of the year. And it's great to see that Sean is having the kind of success he's having with the Florida Project. We will have more on the Golden Brick later in the show. We're going to announce the finalists, and you can vote at filmspotting.net. Listeners have just as much say. Their vote counts just as much as Josh's. Mine's a little bit more, but the same, the same as Josh's. A little weighted. Yes. Let's go ahead and get into our consensus picks then for the best films of 2017. And we're going to start with a couple of films that actually were not consensus favorites at all. In fact, they were among the more divisive films of the year. But as I've been saying, they they feel right as far as having a larger conversation about the year in cinema. We start with Tasha's divisive choice, Darren Aronofsky's Mother, number six. Well, it is certainly a divisive choice. In the first part of this, this list, in the previous episode, Michael talked about in terms of personal shopper, he doesn't care for films where the filmmaker says it's about this one thing. Mother at least does not have that problem. Darren Aronofsky... <laughs> And kind of famously went on tour and kept saying, it's about this one thing. Well, it's about this other one thing. Well, it's about this other, other one thing. (laughs) And that is one of the things that fascinated me about Aronofsky's mother. Watching it the first time, I kind of had the experience of, oh, well, this is a fairly obvious and and somewhat heavy-handed metaphor. At the same time, it's such a visceral film. And I I became caught up in the performances, in the filmmaking, in the unfolding of the story. And the movie has really stuck with me on an emotional level. Now, once I got out and started talking to other people about the movie, I found out that a lot of people have had that experience. Oh, it's very blatantly about a metaphor for blah. But Blah was always different. Everybody had had a different experience of that movie. And I am so fascinated by that. I'm so fascinated at the applicability of this very, very specific story to so many different aspects of of the world and of experience. I think just on a fundamental filmmaking level, it's one of the most thrilling and terrifying and emotionally evocative movies I saw this year. But on an ambition level, on a conceptual level, it just kind of it floored me how well it's put together to do so many different things while not being in any way general or nonspecific. It is it is an experience. And I feel like a lot of people walked away from that experience angry because it wasn't the experience they were expecting to have. I feel like I went in without expectation and I came out feeling like my mind had been expanded with all of the the weird things he crammed into it. It's a very different movie on second viewing. I think at that point, just the the filmmaking verve comes out more than the, the strange expectations. Hmm. But hmm. I'm really a fan of Mother. Uh, me too, and I wish I, I look forward to the second viewing because that was a tough one to write on one viewing, and I li- I liked it, and I did I did feel like you know I felt like I was in the grip of somebody's fever dream, and that's that doesn't 
a lot of filmmakers go for that, <laughs> but it, it does it doesn't have the true unpredictability of the thing, you know. And, and given that it's all the you know every, everything, all the templates are sort of there to be. You can you can say it's an Adam and Eve thing. You can say it's you know full of biblical parallels, and and that this is I'm already out of my depth in terms of religious literature. But it's not a film that a studio will ever make again. <laughs> a big well, studio and ever, and that's no matter. Even if you did hate it, and I'm more mixed than hate on it, you have to admire that it exists, right? It's mm-hmm. just one of those that you wonder at how it does exist, and right. it was distributed the way it was, and that's probably I don't know if you want to call it a mistake, but something this major studio is not going to do again after the way it was received. But yeah, the sheer audacity of it uh, is something that you have to hold some admiration for. It just seems like Aronofsky keeps making movies where every movie that he makes is a movie that a studio is never going to make again. And so he's he's leaving a trail of burned road behind him, but he makes a better burned road than anybody I know. All I'm trying to do is bring life into this house. Open the door to new people, new ideas. I'm so sorry. Get out of my house! Yeah! You give and you give and you give. Never enough. All right. Our next divisive choice that only appeared on my list is a movie, Josh, that I think you did hate and a movie I don't think you appreciate that it exists. Unfortunately, it's Martin McDonough's Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. It's my number four film of the year. It's a movie starring Frances McDormand as a mother who is seeking justice in the case involving her daughter who was murdered. Several months have passed and the police have not found any leads. And she decides to buy three billboards outside of town attacking the revered sheriff played by Woody Harrelson. Sam Rockwell also stars as kind of his second in command, a very loose cannon. Beyond my appreciation for the performances, so many of them in this movie, and the writing, and Michael, something this is going to shock Josh, because I know there are lots of people like him who think the tone is wildly all over the place with this movie. Mm. You mentioned in part one the importance of tone management. I don't know how McDonough does it here, but for me, it it all fits together perfectly as all over the place as it is. It's a time capsule 2017 movie for me for the simple fact that there probably isn't any other movie on any of our lists that has generated more disparate responses. I've seen tons of four-star raves down to one-star annihilations. This movie really enraged some people. And when I think of 2017, I think of rage. Much of it, <laughs> much of it justified, some yeah. not, which I think is the case here, which isn't to say, of course, that there isn't legitimate criticism to be levied against this film. There is. And the volume of it combined with some of the nitpicking and the hand wringing over it only for me solidifies it as a substantial piece of but art. I it, love it that it's dividing more, people that but much. But is it any more divisive than Aronofsky's Mother? Do I don't know. I yeah. haven't seen Mother. I'm the only person here who hasn't seen oh, it, so okay. I can't really comment. And I've avoided all real criticism of Mother for that reason. I want to go in fresh. I, I can it, guarantee you if it is as divisive, it's divisive in a very different very way. Very different way, yeah. yeah Probably, yeah. yeah. I had a very, very odd experience with that because I, I ended up giving, I hate the star rating stuff, but you know, I gave three stars to three billboards and you know, struggling to figure out, okay, how, in, the, in the realm of stars, what would you do for Mother? I ended up with a three. Mother's a film I can't wait to see again. And three billboards, I feel like I'm 
done hmm. after once. Really? Yeah, that happens sometimes yeah. with ratings, right? You just can't find the right number. But I, yeah, to me, it speaks to kind of a limitation of the sure. film, though. And I and I am queasy with some of the racial implications okay. in it, and, which I think is yeah. some of the criticism that should be discussed yeah. with that definitely film. tone deafness. Yeah, there. no, no, Adam, it's a dumb pick. Okay. It's a dumb pick. That's fair. I thought you had my back based on your three-star review. Now I'm feeling attacked. But I will say, for me, tone deaf is a phrase that should apply only to bad PR campaigns and celebrity apologies, not to art, which is what this film decidedly is. I will will take your back on this one, though. This this one was actually on my top 15 before it was bumped off at at literally the the final hour by BPM, which I saw the night before I finished composing uh, my my top 15. I, I think that there are aspects of this movie that are very tone deaf. I think there are there are bits and pieces of it that don't belong. I also think it has one of the year's most memorable performances. Uh, maybe, um, if not for another movie we're going to talk about in a few minutes, I would say maybe the most memorable performance of the year in Frances McDormand. Yeah. This movie brought up a lot of, of very strong feelings, and most of them were, were a mixture of, of appalled fear and admiration for the character she plays, both as it's designed and written and as she plays it. I, I think she's just a, a really memorable talent, and I think Martin McDonough finds all sorts of ways to, to tie into what she does best, mm-hmm. that level of ferocity and lack of compromise and doesn't give a crap, right. and yet cares so passionately yes, about everything. that really comes through. She's it's astonishing that she can pull that off. There is definitely a better forum to respond to much of the criticism of the movie. Some of it I have engaged with on Letterboxd already. As much as I'd like to, I'm not going to bore you all by going scene by scene, beat by beat, through what <laughs> I think people are getting wrong with this We've movie. we like eight hours for this I podcast. Know, but I, I want to focus on the experience I had and what I took away from the movie. One point. I do want to address, because I keep seeing this pop up in comments, is people seem to really have an issue with a certain character's quote-unquote turn Mm. near the end of the film that they find too abrupt. And honestly, my first response is I think people who feel that way are dramatically overstating and simplifying the journey that character is on and where he's at by the end of the film. But I think beyond that, they're also overlooking two highly traumatic scenes that that character experiences that he almost certainly would get thrown on the path to change after those moments. Those moments are almost biblical to go back to mother. Of course, they would set him in a different direction. Is it a transformation? It's certainly an attempted transformation that we see, but it's in progress and only in progress. Matt Singer, he's got my back a little bit. We're going to hear from him from Film Spotting SVU and Screen Crush later in the show. I think he had it as his second favorite film of the year. And he mm-hmm. says, it's a movie about how anger consumes and destroys and how the only cure for that anger is empathy, something that's in short supply these days, but Three Billboards has in abundance. I think Matt's dead on. I think it is about the all-consuming nature of anger and the need for empathy. But I do think it's a lot more provocative than that for me. I think the question we're left with as a viewer is way more complex and challenging. It's the question, if you've read any of McDonough's plays or seen his two previous films, you know it's there. And it is, what does salvation, what does redemption truly look like? How do we decide when someone has earned redemption, has earned forgiveness? I think a lot of us think that's a good thing. We give it a lot of lip service, this idea of forgiveness and redemption. But this movie really makes us confront what that ugly process actually is. And I don't think McDonough is interested in redemption as just a narrative payoff. He really is focused on that process. And I know, Michael, in your review that I thought was positive, but I guess isn't so positive, mentioned how McDonough has that streak of the adolescent joker in his work, and maybe at some point he'll abandon that. That's definitely there. 
If you're one of those people who think the movie lacks sensitivity, he's too eager to offend, that's definitely on the table as well. But I would argue that if you think his primary aim is just to be that provocateur, to shock and offend, and not really reckon with the human condition, which it's clear at this point, that's what Martin McDonough is after— I think you're not giving him enough credit as an artist. The problem is he's trying to reckon with the human condition without dealing with any humans. There were no characters here. They they were pawns on this chessboard for this schematic that he had set up. And I think it is fair to call art tone deaf. If, if the art of directing is tone management, then tone's a part of it. And doing something like, this wasn't my main problem with the film, but having a black character, this is not a 2017 capsule film because it is way out of date when it comes to some of the very important issues that we're struggling with. To have a black character be a token for the plot machination where she is sent to jail so that the plot can move forward and then pops up, that is something that's offensive, not in a provocative way, but in an area of oversight and neglect. And you could say the same for some of the plot threads that involve domestic abuse. Now, I'm not in the group that was offended by the film. For me, those were things I noticed. I don't even know that I wrote about them in my review because it just didn't bother me that much. I thought, oh, it was kind of like a, you probably wish you hadn't done that. For me, Adam, I just could not watch a single scene without noticing that the acting was at odds with the music, was at odds with the dialogue, was at odds with the emotion we were supposed to be experiencing. And, I had the and just opposite one example <laughs> is complete when opposite. Frances McDormand and her ex-husband, played by John Hawks, uh-huh. comes in. And in like two minutes, we have a scene of him physically throwing her up against a wall. Her son Which is comes at in the, the ex-husband with a knife. And we are in an intense moment of domestic violence. Then the new girlfriend comes in with a one-liner. And it's funny. Okay? No, it's not funny. And then later it's on, we have Francis McDormand. And yes, exactly. It's going for intense violence. Then it's going for humor. And then Hawks and McDormand are having a sentimental talk all in the same scene. Uh, that's None what, of that's this what's fascinating about the movie. Working. And there are also all, there are also times when the music itself is playing sentimental and there is violence happening or that long tracking shot with the Sam I'm Rockwell with character. All of this. And it's like a <laughs> rock and roll. <laughs> the racist cop is going to have his moment that we're all asked it's putting to be us a part in of. his headspace. It's not glorious. Glorifying it, Josh. And that's a big difference. That no, but even the desire to be in that headspace now, and that's how you're ugly process of redemption in the human condition. All those things. It's supposed to be fun in that sequence. Absolutely, Mm. every filmmaking choice is fun. I thought it was gruesome. And that's where I thought the it was gruesome and hard to watch. Deaf as well. I didn't think it was fun. Michael, where's the popcorn? <laughs> I, I need the popcorn. That's a good debate. I mean, the problem is McDonough's sense of craft and kind of screw tightening with the narrative is really strong. And so you can enjoy the film on some level and still think, like I did, that it's not really about redemption in the human condition because I also, I know that, Adam, you're really well-versed in inflating the reputation of No Country for Old Men, for Mm -hmm. example. Uh, (laughs) But uh, like that film, I think this one's less about redemption and more just about the satisfaction of revenge. That's all it is. Josh, Ooh, I don't think, I think you're it's deeper wrong than that. about anything that you've said except parsing out what that particular scene is. To me, that transition from familial violence to a one-liner to sort of a sentimental conversation is meant to communicate the role of violence in these people's lives and the degree to which it has become its old hat. It's just part of the communication. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is something that happens in abusive households. I think 
that it is tragic, it is violent, it sure, is scary. absolutely. But it's also all about the transition from one extreme to another within this family that's used and to And maybe that's it. what he's not finessing for me are those transitions. Maybe that's where the breakdown is, where this is supposed to be all of a piece in his mind and the way he's played it out. But it's just not registering. It, it's herky-jerky as a viewing experience for me. Yeah, I, I can, can see that. I, can I mean, absolutely get behind that. I do think that the degree that the film has problems is because it's less a continuum than a whole bunch of different pieces, some of which I really loved and some of which I didn't. But I think, Adam, to, to bring it back to your point, what links it all together is that it. I don't think it is about redemption. I think it's about a bunch of people who are experiencing anger as a fire hose of emotion that they spread in all directions, learning how to focus it in something that might be a more productive direction. Yeah. No, I, I think that fits with my theme, honestly. And unfortunately, I can't fully articulate why it's a movie about redemption without talking about the end scene of the film and really get into some of those specifics. But I honestly think that people's reaction to that character that I'm talking about in terms of that abrupt turn, I think people are maybe maybe missing that journey he's on and the fact that they're reacting to him the way they are, that they think that he has suddenly become this infinitely better person and the movie wants us to think that, that shows how uncomfortable people are actually are the with the idea of character? redemption. Maybe it, I am, Josh. Okay. Well, no, I, 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 ask, I ask because, and I have to ask because they're so hard to identify because they do vacillate. It's not for me necessarily a turn that he makes, a one degree turn. It's the roles that this story has asked him to play. So the Rockwell character is originally like a hee-haw supporting character who's there mm -hmm. for jokes. Then we find out, oh no, he's this like really terrible yep. racist. He who contains has, multitudes, who has Josh, a, just like the film. And they're all a centimeter deep is the problem. Okay, well, there's enough of them that it added up to a whole ditch for me, Josh. <laughs> a whole ditch, it's a of, ditch really, of, a movie. of really fascinating characters. And I do love this film, and I do genuinely love that it's engendered this type of vitriol in response to it and the, the passionate defenses of it, which I have seen certainly both of on the internet. I think we should probably go ahead and move on from here. We have one more choice that is actually an outlier, though. I know, Josh, it was in strong contention for you right up until the last moment. Michael, your number six film of the year. My number six is Mudbound. This is director D. Reese's adaptation of the Hillary Jordan novel, uh, and it's set in 1940s Mississippi. You have two families, one African-American, one white, the McCallans and the Jacksons, landowners and sharecroppers, kind of navigating their lives around each other. You have uh, parallel stories where you have two different characters, one black, one white, going off to World War II and coming back with a serious case of um, post-traumatic stress disorder. And the vets coming home are played by Garrett Hedlund and Jason Mitchell. It's a really teeming movie that I think was – conceived initially for a, a much longer sort of limited series or mini-series format. And then once they got Netflix on board, they said, well, okay, one feature is good. So it, it's got that slightly overpacked feeling where you're really trying to do justice and get the dramatic value out of, you know, a dozen or so characters. I, but I, I was completely with this one. It's gorgeous looking in a very unshowy way. The cinematographer, Rachel Morrison, uh, should damn well get an Oscar nomination. And in a year when a lot of attention was paid to the, what few women actually got access to material in front of a, in front of a camera, you know, Patty Jenkins did very well, very well with Wonder Woman. But this achievement here in Mumbai, I think Dee Reese, who made Pariah before this, and then 
the biopic Bessie, which showed on HBO, she is a serious comer and just, I, I, she's got a wonderful, I'll tell you, I've seen so many stories set in the South, source materials written by a white writer, maybe the, there's a fair number of black characters, uh, maybe prominent, all vaguely patronized and cardboard. And here I really felt, because of this, the work they did on the script and the casting, I just felt like this is this is one of those rare cases where you're really getting a satisfying mixture of African-American and white characters making sense together dramatically in a really racially charged time in America's history. How'd you know you outranked? Well, I was a captain. They got Negro captains I served on plenty of. Well, you obeyed my order. I bet you was a sergeant. 761st Tank Battalion. Come out fight. We spearheaded for General Pat. You? I flew B-25s. Heard you and my pappy had some words. I apologize for that. He's a disagreeable son of a bitch. I'm sure he had it coming. Here's to you. I'm fired, thank you. Well, are you always this stubborn or just around white people trying to be nice? Yeah, it, it does feel different. You're right, Michael. Uh, and yet, you know, it looks almost on paper and maybe some of the imagery to be so traditional in form as a historical drama that maybe some people are writing it off. But I knew I was in for something special from that opening scene Reese has of the two white farmers digging this grave in, in the mud on this farm. And they come across what uh, we presume to be a, a burial ground for slaves' bodies right. from many years before. Right. And not only is that bookended harrowingly with the end of the film, but right there you see how th- this movie is just going to – burrow in on the the way racial oppression has seeped into the very soil of America. And there's continuing imagery, and the title points to it right away, but of just these characters wrestling with the ground itself, what, what the earth means for one family compared to the other. And it is really quite an accomplishment Rees has done with the material that had to be difficult, as you doesn't, said. It that, doesn't feel to me like like that sort of ahistorical fiction where characters added the racial attitudes and the prejudice of the time is, is somehow made more you know easy or palatable or sort of um, – uh, transcendable, you know, like, you know, it, it just didn't feel like uh, pre-civil rights era for dummies, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like so no. many movies, like, yes. the, hel- like the help yes. did. Well, not pre, but, like, you know, the help had that air of like, really, you know, really this, are, are you really saying that this story is taking place when it is because the attitudes feel much different than that. This, there's, I don't know. There's I, more of a rawness to yeah, this. Yeah, and it, and it just completely works as drama and it's a great cast. So. Yeah, I just caught up with the Mudbound over the weekend and I have to say I enjoyed probably the first 60 to 90 minutes of this movie as much as I enjoyed any film this year. Wow. Just basking in the imagery and being with these characters and getting to know all of the characters was enough for me. And I think where it started to slip a little bit for me was just when the plot did inevitably have to kick in a little bit. There's a certain dreadful inevitability yeah. to me to, and, and there's a to lot some of, of that. There's a lot of it. That, that I found a little bit tough to deal with. And I think some of the some of the loose threads that are there aren't tied together in the way maybe I would have liked, but it is an absolutely no, it's a little, gorgeous it's, film. It's a little messy and it's overstuffed. And I do think, I think some of the, like the battle sequences aren't really as convincing as the, everything mm-hmm. else in the picture. But, you know, some of that just might be reason not having a real instinct or facility, how to film it on a limited budget. Um, speaking of limited budget, I, I just wish Netflix didn't 
treat these products of theirs, which are prestige, critics-driven, you know, kind of classy projects. They never show them in theaters. It played one theater in Chicago in South Barrington. And this, one. Deser- this deserves a big screen. Well, I mean, it's just visually, like, yeah. it's... I just think also with this one, it's it's a wasted opportunity. You're trying to tell me that African-American audiences and white audiences can't find some reason to, to turn out for Mudbound? If they found it, they would they would go. But, you know, Netflix wants to you know, get them, keep them at home and have them streaming. It's the opposite approach uh, from Amazon Studios, which, you know, look at Manchester by the Sea. Does that even seem commercial? Well, not really. Made fifty million bucks in theaters. It's not so much that Netflix wants to keep people home and seeing it, because Netflix wants to be eligible for awards. It's that theater owners do not want to screen a movie that you can stay home and see. Right. Instead. I'm sorry. I should make that distinction. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. But yeah, I mean, it is it is sort of a problem because as Netflix keeps trying to make these movies that potentially nobody else is making, like the opportunity for them to actually be seen outside of the the circle of people who are clicking through idly looking for something to entertain them is is limited. And that is a problem for this kind of movie in particular. It is. Well, speaking of dreadful inevitability and rawness, Josh, you're number four film of the year. Can we get to Raw? Time to get to Raw? Yes. All right. So, yes. Yeah, we, we often split, as we just did, Adam, over provocative movies, mm-hmm. I think. And uh, I fear the impression might sometimes be that I just don't like being provoked. Well, here's Raw. Which I didn't say it. could be called... I was a teenage cannibal, maybe. Yeah. It's uh, it's uh, as transgressive, I would say, as that title implies. This is a movie that disturbed me. I, I didn't really, I still don't entirely know what to do with it. Uh, but the sheer force of its will and the things that I do think it's playing around with are provocative in ways that I find just intriguing and a scary rabbit hole I'm willing to follow to go down. Uh, Garance Marier has the lead role here, and it, it's an unsettlingly direct performance by a young actor. She plays Justine, a 16-year-old vegetarian who goes to vet school <laughs> and develops a taste for a lot of things, but especially meat, let's just say. Uh, it's really disturbing, but thanks to director Julia Ducarneau, she has uh, a visual wit. There's a lot of humor, dark humor to this movie, and as I said, sheer energy, and so it's it's feverishly thrilling as you're being horrified. And along the way, I think it does ask tough questions about, about hunger and appetite of the most primal kind. You know, it, human beings are scary creatures, even when we're not cannibals, and, and here you get a lot of both. Uh, raw. Which of us aren't cannibals? <laughs> Everybody in this room is a cannibal, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's yeah, like Tasha. It's, it's, sure. like that, it's like that old Monty Python sketch where, where the where the guy comes on and says, "Well, we've got, we've got that problem relatively under control now." <laughs> <laughs> so raw. I know Michael. I can get on this one. Yeah, it's our first some consensus support yes. from Two you. People yes. Have it. No, I love it, and 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 I, I think you don't want to mislead people into thinking it's a heavier. I think it's a, I think it's hilarious. Very funny. Hilarious yes. black comedy, and I love how hmm. blunt and simple the central idea is like you know of all I mean half the conversations in Raw are taken take place with one character who's got a forearm up the back of a cow you know because it's veterinary school and they're just learning how, and so there's just some of the it's it's the ookiest of the movies this year <laughs> You know, and uh, and it. I, I just think that it's as for me, it's as an effective. It's almost as an effective a genre mashup as 
as what Jordan Peele achieved with Get Out. Mm. I, I, that to me, they're, they're kind of talking to each other. Those two movies, I think. Hmm. Well, there, yeah, there's a very serious one about um, hazing, right? And and college culture. This is she's going to a dormitory. This is how this veterinary school is set up, even at 16. And so there's a thread to that that you could take on face value that's serious but there's so much humor to it that needle drop that music drop on the scene um won't give any more away than that but when you know where things it's clear now where things are going to go for her yeah there's just a wonderfully hilarious music drop to accompany that that right. uh, yeah is one of the moments of the year for and me and adam was happy with the two right you liked it almost as much as well. i am i am mixed, mixed on raw i respect a lot about it, Ducourneau, the the camera work, the way it does fill you with dread. It is disturbing. And as a mood piece, it's absolutely effective. It didn't add up to me to anything more mm. than just being really disturbing. And I think one other thing that I have been thinking about since finishing the film, and Josh, you talk about this sometimes, movies that you want to just acknowledge a little bit some of the the moral ickiness, if you will. You talked about it with Call Me By Your Name, just showing a little bit more interest in that. One thing that struck me, and maybe it was there for you, is I never really got the sense from the lead character. She's so put together and knows what she wants from life, despite her immaturity, and she's so brilliant. We get that sense right away. And I know this is a movie that's about the all-consuming nature of these appetites, and yet there's never really a moment from her where you see her step back for a second and question the truly insane things and insane acts that she's performing. There's never that moment where she, where I felt like she was wrestling with it. It's just, it's just go for it. Yeah, no, that's a fair description. And I think that might be what's scariest about her. She, it, it flips you from her being the point of sympathy in the movie to the one you're afraid of the most. Yeah. And th- yeah, there's really something troubling about that. One more consensus choice here before we take a short break, and it's a film, Tasha, that you have at number two on your list. Michael Phillips, you have at number four, and we've got some support. You usually don't get it from your friend, your frenemy, Scott Tobias. But <laughs> Usually we're at each other's throats about everything, but we, we all walked out of this film uh, pretty much in consensus. <laughs> Hello, Film Spotting crew. This is Scott Tobias and Keith Phipps. We're from uh, the Next Picture Show. We have the same number one this year, so we're doing this call together. Our number one is Phantom Thread. Keith, why is it your favorite movie of the year? Well, it's it's funny because I had a different film as my number one up until I saw the Phantom Thread. I know you did too. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, this is just—it's an overwhelming film. It's—it's it's a sensuous delight. I did not know what to expect from it, based on the premise, based on Paul Thomas Anderson, pretty much doing whatever he wants these days. And I definitely wasn't expecting some sort of strange middle point between There Will Be Blood and Punch Struck Love with this wonderfully unpredictable romance. That's also kind of a story of uh, how power works out on a very intimate level. That's also kind of funny. Yeah. Um, I don't know, Scott. What about you? Why is it your number one? Uh, well, to be it just had that combination of audacity and refinement both that no other film of 2017 could really match for me it's about love and its obsession and the artistic process and it's and while it's made with the exacting standards of a Reynolds Woodcock original Anderson leaves a lot of room for mystery too I think there was just a lot to puzzle over with this film and I just think on a filmmaking level the sophistication here is unparalleled exactly maybe? next level other other things to praise uh, the performances are great Daniel Day Lewis is amazing Vicky Creeps yeah. Crips how are you pronounce it uh, yeah. someone 
someone who was basically unknown to me holds her own against him wonderfully. And we got Leslie Manville in the, in the third, also very important role yeah. as Reynolds Woodcock's sister. It's a, yeah, to say more would probably be spoiled too much, but it's, it's, what else did you like about it, Scott? No, that's, uh, I think we, we need to keep it short because this has to be like a call. This has to be like a message, basically, like an answering machine message. I don't know. I'm just saying. I loved it. I loved it too. I think that pretty much sums it up and really what more need be said. We could just move on. No, wait, we can't move on. Uh, We're actually going to do that film on the next picture show in January when it comes out and is more accessible. And we're pairing it with Hitchcock's Rebecca, which is the film, one of the films that Paul Thomas Anderson took as inspiration. This film, Phantom Thread, has some of the same character dynamics, the, the, the triad of competing wills and egos that Rebecca has. But it's so distinctly a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. So many of his films have left me cold in one way or another. So I went into this film kind of with my defenses up, not expecting a lot. And he took them down within the first maybe two minutes of the film. Mm. There's just a, there's a lushness and an intensity of the movie that gives you that sense that's one of the greatest feelings of being a film critic is that that early film sense that you're in the hands of a master, that you're in the hands of someone who knows what they're doing, who has a a spectacular and specific vision that they're exploring, and who is completely in control of both the story and how that story is being told. And as this film unfolded, it fits the category that I I described earlier as my list for the year of, of being endlessly surprising, but also extremely emotionally evocative. The film moves through a series of emotions, but those emotions are both part of a whole cloth together, which is a little bit of a metaphor given that the film is expressly (laughs) about making clothing, about being a, a fashion designer and what that means in the 1950s. But it's also expressly how all of these these disparate emotions fit together within a couple of, of very specific minds. It's about two people who are extremely stubborn, butting up against each other in a very quiet and controlled clash of wills. It's about it's about creativity. It's about the artistic impulse. It's about the ego and, and the need to express it and the different ways that that happens. It's about a lot of things in so many ways that I wouldn't want to spoil for anybody walking into this film for the first time. What does Darren Aronofsky think it's about, though? Uh, Well, Darren Aronofsky (laughs) thinks it's about climate change and also about pickles. (laughs) And I think it's about how it's a better mother in a way. So if you take one reading of Mother, which is one of the literal ones, and then see how Phantom Thread is a parallel to that, I think, I hope we're going to give a full review to it in the new year. Coming out in Chicago mid-January, we'll review it. In more detail on the show. This was a very easy movie to see a second time. And I, I really, I, I'm sure just like There Will Be Blood somehow didn't end up at my one, number one slot that year. Although years later, it was clear to me that it was like actually the film of the decade. <laughs> this film, I will probably in six months time regret not ranking higher. But it's, I love how Anderson can tease out everything he wants from the filmmakers he adores that makes sense for this story. Max Ophuls and Vincent Minnelli especially, I think, just in the in the sweep of the thing and the design of the shots. But it doesn't feel like a, 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 an artist just sort of ripping off other artists. You know, I just feel like – and there's all kinds of uh, kind of hilarious meta commentaries going on because all these insanely exacting – 
um, standards that uh, uh, Daniel Day Lewis's character, the designer, is is sort of you know letting run his life and ruining other people's lives. Essentially, it's it's exactly what Daniel Day Lewis goes through as an actor. And you know, I mean, he he uh, in interviews he was talking about how he and Anderson just sort of laughed and laughed about the script and thought, oh, this is going to be a kind of a great dark comedy. And then every day of filming, Day Lewis just got more and more depressed because it, <laughs> you know the film is such a bizarre mixture yeah. of tone. And tone management does not mean one tone, you know. And exactly. Good God. Now, How you now, juggle them. Now with Paul Thomas Anderson, wonderful acting and uh, best score of the year, Johnny Greenwood. Mm. It's, uh, it's, you're absolutely right, Lush. I wish there was another word besides Lush and elegant. I, you, know, you, you have to search for the right way to describe it. It doesn't come easily, and that's, that's a good sign, too. You're number four film of the year. Tasha at number two, Josh. Did you have it in contention it's, at all? It's in the 11 through 15 Mine slot as well. for reasons we'll probably get yeah, into. I can't wait to I'm discuss it, to that. mainly because it means I will get to watch it a second time. And just as There Will Be Blood would not have been in my top 10 of 2007 without me seeing it a second time, and The Master wouldn't have made my top 10 films of the year, it came out without a second viewing. Phantom Thread is off just for that reason. You guys are better critics than me. You were able to connect with this movie in some way beyond just the aesthetics of it, beyond the craft. I certainly appreciated that. But I think I was so stunned and surprised moment to moment, not knowing where it was going, that when it ended up where it did, it it left me still still wondering how I got there. You feel like you have to catch up. And honestly, it felt like a little bit of a punchline. I'll say the end of the film, even though I know it's building to it, Felt like a little bit which of Which he a, does. Like he's, he's jabbing at us a little bit, yeah. which, which just there's some of the humor It's to that. my favorite rom-com of the year. It is, <laughs> seriously. That, it just yeah. happens to be an extremely dark one. Well, you, know? you mentioned Minnelli, and you know Minnelli much better than I do, but that's appropriate, certainly, for that opening sequence. It feels like something out of a musical, mm-hmm. despite the fact that there's no singing and there's no direct dancing. No, it's a pretty but the modest, way they're it's, moving... It's a pretty modestly scaled picture. And but in the fact, way they're moving through that house oh, yeah. is this house of it's design. It's choreography. Yeah, 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 it really oh, is certainly. choreographed. I, I say, mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a fashion show sequence in the middle of the film that feels something like the uh, the underwear ballet from Oklahoma. I mean, it feels so much <laughs> like it's taking place in a classical musical without the classical musical soundtrack. And the the insertion of the soundtrack that it does have is part of what gives you that, that tonal dissonance that makes you sort of feel a complex mixture of things. Like what what is being conveyed here is so many things at once. It's it's just a wonderful experience. Here's one thing I didn't get to the second viewing, and then I'll shut up about this. I think there's something that links it with Mother a little bit, in that these two directors, Paul Thomas Anderson and Aronofsky, Darren Aronofsky, are they're examining a certain kind of priggish male ego and and kind of a monumental sense of male privilege and. It's not. It's not an uncritical look at it. So mm-hmm. it's hardly just sort of recycling the same old patriarchy stuff. And uh, this year, more than any other year I can remember, it's important to kind of single out the artists of both genders and every every which way if they can just look at themselves critically as well as looking at the world around them. And I think that's what gives makes this movie such a tonic because he gets great, you know, like bizarre, unexpected drama out of this central somewhat toxic relationship but also this a kind of comedy that you just sort of can't see coming and I, I, I'm half for it I love it that's a, that's a really strong observation and I think one of the things that's interesting there is that mother deals with that kind of male ego through a woman who's suffering and struggling and, and having a very difficult time with it Phantom Thread addresses the same form of male ego with a woman who has a, a 
depth of backbone that it takes the unfolding of the entire film to fully understand. Right, right. It's opposite approaches that both work equally well. But I, I, I have to call out Vicki Kreps as uh, – I mean she is – She's a virtual unknown to me, and she gives Daniel Day-Lewis a run for his money as an actor. She she is my performance of the year. She mm. is the one who edged out Francis McDormand for me. That's great. Well, Paul Thomas Anderson, certainly a well-established director. When we come back, we're going to give some attention to up-and-coming filmmakers whose visionary 2017 works we've nominated for our annual Golden Brick Award. As we did on part one of this Top 10 Films of the Year roundtable, we are going to share some best film music of 2017 via friend of the show, Sam Smith who's a Nashville-based musician and designer, hosts a music show there. We'll link to that in our show notes at filmspotting.net. Among his favorites this year was Hans Zimmer and Benjamin Walfish's score for Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. We'll hear a bit of the track Home. Adam and Josh, it's Ryan Johnson calling in again with my number one of the year. I thought there were uh, so many great movies this year. There's a bunch I haven't seen yet. Um, I want to call out one runner-up before I say my favorite, just because I think it kind of might have slipped under the radar. Uh, There's a movie called Good Time, which was uh, directed by the Safdie brothers, and um, it's a fantastic, like, down-and-dirty little New York noir that uh, I think everyone should try and look up. Um, but my number one of the year, uh, and it's always unfair whenever a PTA movie comes out, but Phantom Thread uh, just completely absorbed me. And um, it's been, uh, I've seen it twice. It's its just stuck in my brain. I can't wait to see it again. And uh, yeah, I loved Phantom Thread. I uh, hope you guys have a fantastic new year and I hope we get to talk uh, talk soon. Thanks, guys. Hello, Film Spotting. This is Alicia Malone, host of the Filmstruck podcast here. And I wanted to tell you about my favorite film of 2017. It is Call Me By Your Name. Now, here's a true story for you. I actually changed my hotel, extended that by a night and changed my flight at Sundance just so I could catch the last screening of this movie because everyone was talking about it. And I don't regret it at all, even though it cost me about $400 (laughs) because it really has remained my favorite film ever since I saw it in the snowy Sundance back in January. The reason why I love this film is that it's a sensitive beautiful, quite sensual tale of a lovely relationship. Timothy Chalamet is so vibrant and playful and just completely inhabits this character. This is also the best I've ever seen Army Hammer and the two of them together have such great chemistry. I want to be as smart as the people in this movie. I want to be living in Italy and eating peaches baby and also dancing to the psychedelic furs. It's a beautiful film that I just I've watched now five times, and I still love it. So happy holidays, film spotting, and uh, enjoy your enjoy your Christmas holiday break. <laughs> Bye.
Hi, film spotting. It is Amy Nicholson here calling in to talk about my top 10, or I guess my top one. My number one is an experimental doc that I saw at Sundance this year that started off 2017 amazing and really was just the high point. Nothing's been able to shake it, which has me as surprised as anybody else. But it's called Casting Jean Monnet. And what it is, is it's this experimental doc that interviews local wannabe actors from Colorado where John Bonet, the girl beauty queen, was murdered on Christmas of 1996. And, you know, we know a lot about that case, or maybe we think we know a lot about that case, but Casting John Bonet isn't like a tabloid making a murder story. Instead, what it is, is the director asks these people who want to be in a film that they think maybe is that tabloid story, that eternal actor question, you know, what's my motivation? And you get to hear these actors auditioning to play the parents start to empathize with people who everyone secretly thinks maybe killed their daughter. And it's just really lovely. It's really beautiful. And it's on Netflix right now. And that's casting Jean Bonnet. It's amazing. Thanks for letting me give that one a shout out. Welcome back to Film Spotting. Adam, Josh, Tasha Robinson, and Michael Phillips here sharing our final five choices, our consensus choices, as we're calling them for the films of the year. You just heard Amy Nicholson, host of the Canon podcast, a critic we love who writes for many publications. And I am grateful to her for that voicemail. I also hate her because she picked a movie in casting John Bonet that listeners recommended earlier this year as a potential Golden Brick nominee. It sounds very much right up my alley, the kind of film I would love, the type of experimental doc I would love. I even started it at one point, late on a Friday night, 20, 30 minutes in. Life intervenes. And life intervened. Well, and had, I haven't finished it. He had to finish Raw. I, mean, I did have to finish Raw. <laughs> so now, more than ever, I know that I need to catch up with casting John Bonet. Thank you, Amy. In her full voicemail, she actually mentioned a couple of other favorite films of 2017. Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird, a little Martin McDonough movie called Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Top uh, three. Top three uh, 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 for the great Amy Nicholson. Very astute, smart critic. And writer-director Mike White's Brad Status with Ben Stiller, which is certainly an outlier among I've the not, films I've of 2017. Not, I haven't seen that pop up on any list yet, but either. I'm sure it has. But uh, many defenders, um, yeah. Yeah, she had an interesting take, which maybe we'll share in some other form, on Ben Stiller and what makes him such an interesting actor. I do think he gave one of the year's better performances in Noah Baumbach's The Meyerowitz Stories. We're going to get back to our picks for the best films of 2017, but first, a couple of notes. We do want to mention our film spotting t-shirts. You're not going to get them, obviously, in time for Christmas or even New Year's at this point, but... You can still buy them for any occasion, filmspotting.net. Just click on shop there. You can also buy Josh's book, Still Peddling Books. Well, I wrote the thing. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> what, am well, I, what am I going to do with it People might now? as well read it. It's not big enough to be a doorstop. <laughs> Again, just click on shop over at filmspotting.net. At our website is also where you can vote for your choice for the movie that should win the Golden Brick Award this year. It's an annual award that goes back to 2009, named for Ryan Johnson's debut film, Brick, that came out in 2005. Ryan's done okay for himself. I know I know some Star Wars fans are maybe a little bit up in arms about The Last Jedi, but things turned out okay for Ryan Johnson. 
They're doing all right. And but you you named it after him, no, full knowing or suspecting he would someday direct we Star knew. Wars. Yeah, picture. we called it. Yeah. I mean, of course. Last year's winner was The Fits from director Anna Rose Homer, 2015, Sean Baker's Tangerine, 2014, Blue Ruin from Jeremy Sonier. You can find all of our winners over at filmspotting.net. Click on lists, and there is a Bricks link there. Basically, the criteria here, not a mainstream movie, not a highly publicized movie, didn't necessarily play in 2000 theaters. It's made by a new or new-to-us filmmaker, shows a clear directorial vision, artistic ambition, and we had to recommend it. At least one of us had to recommend it on the show. And the winner is selected by us, me, Josh, but also Michael weighs in. The whole film spotting family gets to weigh in on the Golden Brick Award, including Tasha and her co-hosts over at The Next Picture Show, Matt and Allison from SVU as well. Listener vote does count. So you have an important function to serve by going to filmspotting.net and picking which one of these movies should be this year's Film Spotting Golden Brick. We heard about the first option here in part one of this show. Tasha, you had Briggsby Bear at number, number four. four on your top 10 list. This is a debut film from director Dave McCary. It was co-written by and starring Saturday Night Live's Kyle Mooney. And yes, it does star what I hear a very good Mark Hamill. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. Involves kidnapping, brainwashing. I'm very eager to see it. One that I missed at Sundance. <laughs> and if you don't, we'll kidnap and brainwash you until you Yikes. do. All right. Until you see it. Columbus is another film spotting Golden Brick nominee, beautifully shot debut film from video SAS Koganata, starring John Cho and Haley Lou Richardson. And that's all we'll say about Columbus for right now. Lady Macbeth, just recommended by me on the show recently, a bleak and bloody debut film from British director William Oldroyd with a great lead performance from Florence Pugh. Loving Vincent is one I recommended on that same show. This is the stunningly animated story of Vincent van Gogh's final days, co-directed by Dorota Kobiela and Hugh Welchman. And I'm guessing this last one isn't going to get Adam's weighted vote. That's unfortunate. <laughs> Raw. We did talk about it earlier on this show. Michael has it at number eight for 2017. I have it at number four. The debut cannibal comedy. Let's go with cannibal comedy from French <laughs> oh, director funny. Julia Ducourneau. My, Michael and I were just rolling in the aisles with this we thing. Were, we were among the, the rollers. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Columbus, Lady Macbeth, and Raw are all available to rent on DVD or on most streaming platforms. Loving Vincent, harder to see. Probably going to hurt its vote chances, unfortunately, but it's still playing in limited release and it comes out on DVD on January 16th. We encourage you to see all of them. Help us choose the winner of the 2017 Golden Brick by voting now at filmspotting.net. You've got until around January 8th to get your vote in. That next week's show is when we will announce the winner. If you leave some feedback in the poll, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. We're not going to have a live show this year. No time. No energy, frankly, for a rap party, but we're still going to do the rap party. It's just not going to be live. Yeah, so we won't have all those cheers of support over our great picks that I make, the booze over yours. You're going <laughs> you to get, you're gonna have to get used to it that. It really is it's just gonna the really, opposite, It's going to really change things <laughs> when we do this show. Wow. But I'm glad we're still doing these topics. These are really fun topics. We get to pick, like, most moving moment. Musical moment, yeah, I think. Yeah, favorite shot, favorite scene, kind of dig into the details of some of the year's best. Yeah, and that is the show where we will announce the Golden Brick winner. And we're going to get back to our picks for the best films of 2017 with the movie that is my number three, and it is the Golden Brick finalist, Columbus, a movie about a young man who comes from 
South Korea to Columbus, Indiana, when his father, who's a renowned scholar, falls ill. And along the way, he strikes up a friendship with a young woman who lives there named Casey, played by Haley Lou Richardson. The young man is played by John Cho. Columbus, Indiana, a city renowned for its modernist architecture. And I hinted in part one of this show that there was going to be a little bit of a sub-theme for the movies that made up my top five. And that theme is movies that really deliver on what is arguably the grand purpose of cinema, which is to make us see the world in a different way, or simply to make us see, to actually notice the things we take for granted, try to discover the extraordinary in the ordinary. I hate to even bring it up. It's there in a movie like Three Billboards to a lesser extent. Francis McDormand uses signs to challenge the prevailing wisdom in the town. And Michael, in your review, you talked about how McDonough creates a vision of small town Southern America that's half mythology, half reality. So the movie's playing with that. Faces Places, the Varda film, my number five, of course, it's much more blatant where she's shooting those photos of people and plastering them everywhere and discovering truths and new stories that have been ignored or overlooked. Not surprising to me. I had some contact with Koganata, who I interviewed on the show earlier this year, and he was all set. He got sidetracked, couldn't submit the voicemail, but I asked him for his number one film of the year, and he was going to share his love for Agnes Varda's Faces Places, right. because like Varda's film, his movie compels us to consider his characters within their surroundings, how they're in conflict with those surroundings, how they may be at times in harmony with their surroundings, and to truly consider what the purpose of not just architecture is, but what art is. And as I said, I talked to him several months ago, and it was one of the most thoughtful conversations I think I've had with any director on the show. He's an intellectual filmmaker. He's an essayist. He has done a lot of academic work studying great filmmakers, Brisson, Hitchcock, among others, Ozu. And he's truly trying to follow in the footsteps of Ozu, making movies about characters trying to break from their pasts, who are also trying to break from their families or other societal constraints. The compositions to him are clearly so important. The buildings themselves are so important and where the characters are staged and framed within that environment. But they're not more important than the inner lives, I think, of the people looking at those buildings or engaging with those buildings. He's a humanist as much as a formalist. That said, more than any other 2017 film, I'd be most eager to go back through this movie frame by frame. I think it would take me probably an entire day to do it, but it would be that rewarding to just linger on each frame of this movie. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's not just that these are the sort of pictures that you can hang on a wall either. You know, the sort of frames you, we often say, well, you could hang on a wall and look at it and yeah. be beautiful. It's exactly how it's incorporated into the action of the film, which is subdued for sure, but how these characters interact with these spaces. And that makes it sort of a next-level architecture movie because it's not just placing the camera in the right space to get the right shot, but it's using that space and movement within it and, and to turn it into cinema. So, mm -hmm. yeah, really excited to see where Koganada's career goes from this point. No, it's a really good one. And uh, it's it's got it's, – it's another one that you, you, you hesitate to mischaracterize it lest people expect – a more conventional you know, before sunrise, before sunset, link right. later kind of experience. It's different, and it's it's really wonderful. It's number three on my list. Number three, really? Mostly because it was the beginning for me, you know? This one here? Yep. And you didn't know anything about it? Nothing. I just saw it from 
over there. I've probably seen it a thousand times before. But this one night, I was getting in my car and I looked up and saw it. Hey, Adam and Josh, it's Mikado here calling in with my favorite movie of the year. I am going with The Florida Project. It's so great at showing the thrill and imagination of being a kid, where you can turn life at a discount motel into something magical. Plus, the filmmaking is gorgeous. The acting is terrific. Willem Dafoe is awesome, of course. But Brooklyn Prince is everything. All right, thanks, guys. Longtime friend of the show, Mikado Murphy, who produces the great Anatomy of a Scene videos for the New York Times. And Brooklyn Prince is everything might just be all you really do need to say about the Florida Project, but I know we're going to say a lot more. I talked in part one about that curiosity and compassion theme that ran throughout a lot of my choices with the female characters. Mooney, played by Prince, is undoubtedly driven by her curiosity. She may be too immature to really be thinking too much about compassion just yet. And then what I just talked about with Columbus, making us see the world differently. These are the hidden homeless. These are people who live in motels, temporary living situations. We're not passing by them on the street, but their lives are incredibly precarious. And Sean Baker is drawing attention to them. And just visually, there are these layers of reality and illusion at play. The purple walls of the motel and a name like the Magic Castle trying to pass off as if it's connected to the Disney fantasy. And we see it's far from a Disney life. And yet for Mooney, from the perspective of a young girl, it often is almost fantastic, like you're visiting Disneyland. And that's the perspective that Baker gives us, seeing this environment from the kid's point of view. He talked about the little rascals a ton in our interview, and I know in other (laughs) interviews, he's a huge, huge fan. I'm not that familiar with those little rascals episodes, but I'm guessing he was trying to capture the exuberance and that joy that comes through in those scenarios following those kids. And he pulls that off here while at the same time showing that there is an ugly aspect to this life. And I think he's unflinching in the way he depicts it. But the key with a director like Sean Baker is he's not just empathetic. He seems to be someone who is hyper resistant to judging people whose shoes he hasn't walked in. He he completely has an absence of moralizing that I think actually I've seen some comments leave some audiences uneasy, but it can make his work challenging, I think, in a good way. Sean Baker just won't let the world be ugly. I mean, he goes to these troubled places and these people with really difficult lives and insists on viewing them first with grace and then allows us to look through that same lens. But I don't think that means he's he's being Pollyannish about these situations. We certainly see the heartache. Uh, we see these difficulties right up front that these marginalized characters are dealing with, but he he just sees them as beautiful. And, and maybe the next step that you were talking about, Adam, is that he sees them as deserving beauty too mm. in their lives. Mm. And then he gives that to them. It's a nice way to put it. His movies will actually give that to them. Uh, It's kind of like Willem Dafoe's motel manager giving them that fresh coat of lavender. You know, it's he's (laughs) duty bound to do that and just bring that brightness into their lives. Uh, Michael, I don't know if we passed this on, this email on, but after our review we did of the Florida Project and the show, someone wrote in saying, 
They were upset because we were orgasmic, right, Adam? Yes. Do you remember that email? Never Over listening. The scene? Never listening to the show again. Never reading you in the Tribune again. Uh-oh. We fault. were too. We were too excited too on the level of orgasmic about that shot where Defoe lights his cigarette and all of the hotel lights, the exterior lights, come on in response. Shot, so yeah. I'm just going to plead guilty. I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, I'm okay with that. My number two film of the year, Josh's number three, Michael, way down at number nine. Tasha, we won't even get to you outside of your top ten. But the first movie of all the ones we've listed that appeared on three lists. Oh, very good, very good. No, I, it's you know, it, it, I, I think I didn't get it all until the second viewing. You know, I, where I, I had a, I had a very strong reaction immediately to Tangerine, which was the last film I saw last year, and it did suddenly it's on the list. And I, this film is a very interesting departure stylistically I think for him it's just it's just it's great I think to see a director explore a different visual language um I do think but at heart it's it, it it's just a it's the work of a guy we need to hear from he he knows how to pay attention to not homeless, but you're talking about poverty line, poverty line America, the millions and millions of people who, you know, you keep hearing specific numbers in this film in a really interesting way. How much did that paint job cost that you just talked about, William Defoe? You, know, you, you get the figure, what, what, what it set him back. How much, is, how much does a room at this place actually cost? 38 bucks a night, whatever it is. That's 300 a week. These people are spending every damn dime they have. Yeah, and every $10 matters. Yes, they have yeah, a big this, confrontation and, about it. You know, again, as you say, he makes no apologies and no excuses for some of the, you know, illegal behavior. And yeah, a lot of people are seeing the Florida Project in the less charitable or forgiving light. They're just, all they think is lock them up, lock those parents up. Where are they, you know? That was uh, this guy. How Do you know him? Same guy, yeah. The guy who wrote it? No, I'm sure he's a Tribune subscriber. I don't know. Uh, uh, <laughs> a Tribune subscriber that's the, now the, ignoring one entire section of yeah, the Yeah, they're the same people who wrote, wrote me in, many of them on Call Me By Your Name, just saying, lock them up, lock them up. You know, uh, the age difference was enough for them to, you know, to have a romance between a 17-year-old boy and a 24-year-old. That phrase has a lot of purposes. Uh-huh. I didn't realize. Yeah, yeah, no, it's crazy. <laughs> but but uh, it's what you said about Coganata and Columbus. You know, I think Sean Baker's a humanist as well as a, as a formal. Mm-hmm. It's so strange and sad to me that people would watch The Florida Project and what they would get out of it is who can we blame for this and how can we dismiss it? I mean, I don't think I saw a film this year with a larger gap between what the characters are experiencing and what the audience is meant to be experiencing in terms of mm-hmm. the sheer joy that those children have running wild around these these Florida projects and like living this uh, semi-feral life and the experience that we're supposed to be having, I think, as audience members, understanding kind of the dead end direction that they're going in, the lack of options that they have in their world, all of the things that they're lacking and that the the families around them are maybe trying to provide but are completely incapable of because they're they're stuck in this poverty trap. I mean, for me, this was an incredibly empathetic movie. This is an incredibly – this is an engine for empathy that is meant to create this experience of understanding this sort of – these last happy moments of childhood of these kids who maybe don't realize how how poor and lost they are. And there's just a few years separating them from becoming like their parents and, and realizing exactly how heavily poverty weighs on them. Yeah. It's such a striking experiential movie. I mean, it couldn't look more different from Tangerine, but it has much of that same feeling of exploring a community, uh, a very specific, very small 
small community in an intimate and personal way. Yeah. I mean, it didn't quite uh, make it to my list, but it, it is high up there. I enjoyed this movie a lot, but I, I also came out of it feeling tremendously sad. Yeah. No, yeah, I, think sure. that's, I think that's fair, and I think it's just incredibly challenging to some people to be forced to empathize with someone like the mother, to even have to consider her circumstances when – she does a lot of terrible things, but that's what we have to wrestle with. And you're right, to just immediately recoil from that and judge and hate is unfortunate. But I know that that's been the reaction for many people to this movie. I've heard from film spotting listeners of going to see it and having 90% of the theater get up and leave mm. because there's a certain segment of the audience that does not want to be confronted with it. I think it's also right next door in that regard. It's very close to the response of many people to the Safdie brothers film, Good Time. Mm. It's just like, it is behavior they want to see condemned. Yes, mm-hmm. that's it. Uh, yeah, right. And disallowed. Yep. And, and you know, it's just almost refused its screen time. And, you know, that's... No, that's it. Well, I don't know what that's about. I got a videotape of the kids illegally entering the utility room. Don't talk to you. Got it. I'm going to talk to her. Captain Skin, you're out of here. It's only second week of the summer and there's already been a dead fish in the pool. We were doing an experiment. We were trying to get it back alive. That wasn't my and, idea. And water balloons thrown at tourists? You can't f*** with tourists. They didn't tip us. Are you serious? No. Oh my God, this is unacceptable. I failed as a mother, Mooney. You've disgraced me. Harley. Yeah, Mom, you're disgraced. We are ready for our final four choices for the films of the year. And Michael, we're going to you, the movie that is your number two. Yeah, and I I never thought, when I was starting to pull the titles together, I never thought David Lowry's A Ghost Story would end up as the number two. But I reread the review. I saw, saw, I'd seen the movie twice. I saw a couple scenes again. And I thought... You know this. This is this is the way it goes for me. I tend to I tend to get to the end of the year and find um, a lot of or a handful of small films that just kind of get it right. And this is in, in a year full of ghosts and spiritual longing. I think uh, and and we can't look at the movies of 2017 without thinking about the kind of emotional political crud we've been putting up with and just sort of trying to endure and I mean I'm not speaking for everybody in the country obviously but I can only speak for myself every hour of every goddamn day this year you know it has been a really tough distracting year uh, to 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 kind of come to the blank screen and say to filmmakers okay show me what you got I want to I want to go somewhere well, this one took me somewhere. And I think it's a very, <laughs> this it's film a, takes you everywhere. everywhere. It transports it's, you, and yet it doesn't go anywhere. I mean, time, space, everywhere. Right. And it's really just about two people. But all pe- within the confines of this house. Just about two people. Amazing. You know, two people. One of them dies, doesn't leave. Uh, you know, you can, you can. that's enough plot right there. Not for everybody, of course, but, you know, beautiful music. Uh, David Lowry did, you know, he comes off an unexpectedly really good remake of Pete's Dragon, you know? mm-hmm. and I think, and, and and then this little thing he was sort of just making as a personal project it turns out to be yes, my number two of the year. This film is polarizing, and it's polarizing, I think, in the best way because once again, it's just it's such an experience. There are. Like I didn't, I I don't tend to have the experience that you describe in terms of coming down to the end of the year and looking at your reviews and your weight and being surprised at what comes up on top. I tend to get to the end of the year, pack in all of these end of the year films and be surprised by those and where they end up. But earlier in the year, films like 
a ghost story and Brigsby Bear and one that we're going to discuss in just a minute, I know that they're going to end up on my list because they stick with me, mm. because they come mm. back to me over and over and over. Some of the images in a ghost story have lingered with me like nothing else this year. Some of the the individual moments, the transitions, and just the emotions. This is such an emotionally powerful movie in such a, a quiet and controlled way. And the things that it's saying about kind of the nature of, of time and the experience of of death and what it means to be human, I think are extremely ambitious within the realm of a very small budget and operating within a very small space. <laughs> there is this story that literally encompasses all of time. And the way it does so is just so surprising to me. When I think of Ghost Story, and I probably saw it in the summer, so it's been a while, and it's it's not an image that comes first or you know the story itself. It, it's just this an actual feeling of loneliness, because mm-hmm. I think that is the specific thing that this movie captures, at least for me, and gets it so right and so intensely. And obviously you have it in this symbol of this main character, right? Just standing there in this sheet watching a loved one that he can't reach. But the whole film aches along with him in every element that it uses. We've talked about the score a couple times now, this reverberating strings. It's almost like like a heartbeat that's only echoing to itself. It, it just can't, no one else is hearing it. Uh, that boxy aspect ratio that Lowry chose kind of confines this character in this space he can't escape from. And even even the careful editing, this is one of the slowest movies in the sense that it just lets scenes sit there and let us be in stillness. And we get a sense that even when you're lonely, even time can have a stillness to it. And somehow this movie captures that. So a ghost story you just get lost inside of. And I think it's because its grasp of a specific emotion is so, so complete. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I've seen a movie that so effectively captured both loneliness and the experience of what music can do to to complete a connection between people since Wings of Desire. Mm-hmm. That is the there are there are a couple of images in this film that evoked that movie so strongly I can for see me. That. And that moment where where she's listening to the music that he composed when he was alive and she's reaching out and and makes just the briefest contact with his ghost was like a couple of different very specific, very memorable moments in Wings of Desire for me. And they they touched that same place in my heart. That song is actually different from the score, too, I think. It's it's dark rooms, I get overwhelmed. And the fact that it is somewhat apart from everything else we've been hearing, I think, makes that so powerful, that moment so powerful. Were you running late? Did you see too much? All the awful dreams felt real enough. Did you know that she waking up? Did she die in the night? So, Michael, you did have it at number two, Tasha, a ghost story at number three, Josh, number 10, for me, just outside number 12. But I'm with you guys in everything you said about the movie, one of those that's definitely stuck with me as the year has progressed. And now we get to, Josh, the film that is actually your number one and a movie that has a little bit more action than a ghost story. And yet somehow I've argued anyway on this very show that the movies are similar in some way in the way the movies deal with time. I'm going with... An unfashionable, in some ways, an untimely and an un-2017 choice, Dunkirk. I mean, it's a World War II picture. It's made by an established white male director. 
But man, I can't deny the mastery that's at work in this film, the way Christopher Nolan immerses us in his manipulation of time and sound and image. Uh, Dunkirk for me was just overwhelming in a way that I think a lot of big popular cinema tries to be. That's its main goal, I feel like, is I'm just, we're just going to overwhelm you so you've had an experience and you'll think you enjoyed that experience if we're loud enough. But here there's the rigor and the intelligence behind it that a lot of those other blockbusters lack. And really as triumphant as, as the filmmaking itself is, I don't think the movie is triumphant. It doesn't think of itself that way. It doesn't want us to feel triumphant coming out of it. Uh, the movie doesn't mark a military victory. Instead, it largely reminds us of our human frailty. It lauds things like sacrifice and humility over triumph. And these days, few things seem braver than that, I think. Um, so it was really tight for me between Dunkirk and the film we're going to get to next. But for whatever it's worth, Dunkirk won out. Yeah, the criticism of this movie that came up at least around the time that it was released is that it didn't give you anybody to root for. Too many characters. We don't really know them. They're not fleshed out. And I'm stunned by that because this is a movie where the stakes couldn't be more clearly established, couldn't be higher. Life and death scene to scene, moment to moment. Yeah, every moment. I don't need more. I don't need more than that to be invested in the story. I definitely don't need backstory or quote unquote likability. So I'm with you. I was immersed in this film, the structure of it, the way he compresses time and also elongates time. Seeing this from those three different perspectives is fascinating. And a view of war that I can't remember seeing before. For me, it's my number seven film of the year. I, for me, it was just, it was in fact one of those films that I, I couldn't connect to emotionally. Hmm. I do appreciate the the filmmaking rigor. I do think that it's a very intellectual film. But for me, that intellectualism, that that concentration on construction took me out of it. I You, you don't... Agreed. Adam, you say you don't need likable characters. Mm -hmm. I didn't need them to be likable, sure. but I, I needed them to be more human. For me, you can't really connect with Tom Hardy because you only get to see him as a human being in the last moments of the movie. The three boys on the beach, I had a very hard time telling them apart because they looked so similar. They communicated so little and they were so indistinct from each other. Yeah, I connected, I've heard that. Yeah. I connected to the plot on the boat uh, so much more powerfully than anything else that happened in that movie. But because of the way the story story is unfolding, every time we get into like a tight emotional moment there, then we're taken out of it to this much larger and more abstract piece. And I think if the movie had been any one of the three stories, it would have been, it would have had more time and energy and focus to, to expend on those stories. And it maybe would have landed home a little better for me. It struck me as one of Nolan's less intellectualized films, though, really, in that it wasn't so much about the how everything fit together and the puzzle and the process. It wasn't until the second viewing where I started to actually do that because I was really caught up in it as an emotional experience. We were talking earlier about, you know, does a movie manipulate you? And I think Dunkirk has one moment where I felt where the little ships come and, and the score, the Hans Zimmer's otherwise very atmospheric score uh, turns way more. Oh, it's good, except yeah, for that oh, moment. I'm with you. It's, it's I hate the that way music. the way it operates as if it's also propellers and bullets and oh, I know I know what they're going for. Yeah. That's that was <laughs> man just yeah. another way to get sucked into it. But but there is an emotional moment that took me totally by surprise, yeah. and that's what you said before, false. Adam. It's yeah. like it is when Hardy's plane just starts gliding over the beach and things quiet, and then the movie pulls back. That that score falls back, yeah. and I was just 
overtaken in, in that moment. And it, it didn't matter that I didn't know, you know, get a flashback to Hardy's wife waiting for him or, or all these other things that World War II pictures, war pictures have given us. Well, I knew everything I needed to know about that yeah. moment and every element of the picture, including the sound design, played a part in that. Yeah. I, I mean, I admire a, a ton of that movie. and But, but I, ha, I've, I have just a handful of like like kind of simple, stupid objections to it, I guess. You know, I just, I just think it's clear. For me, it's it, the movie is completely successful in the air, period. It's, I think the sky is the most memorable character in the movie. <laughs> there you go. And uh, I think for me, the the complicated time signatures in this thing, where you have three plot lines working at different speeds, uh, to me, it just it needlessly complicates and falsifies the true horror and experience and and valor of what what we're seeing, you know, acted out, you know, in, in this theater of war. I just think we're. Uh, it, it it didn't. He God knows he didn't intend to sort of cheapen the experience, but that that's how I experienced it. Now other people completely all all in, and and I love Nolan's devotion to analog filmmaking. It's of such a, you know, and there's plenty of digital in this, but it just feels in a good way. It feels like the marriage of old and new technology and old and new. Kind of concerns and a and a story, but but I I just you know between the time signatures which kind of just threw me both times I saw the movie, and Hans Zimmer's score which I think is almost just bad enough to win an Oscar, uh, uh, and <laughs> wow. and hopefully Johnny Greenwood for Phantom Thread uh, takes care of that. But uh, but anyway that's my but I I you know again I I was not unhappy to see that film twice, but I struggled with it both times. Another film that three of us had among our top ten, and in fact two of us had as our favorite film of the year, is Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird. I'm one of those two people. Michael, you're the other. And our friend Matt Singer, along with Allison Wilmore from Film Spotting SVU, are going to weigh in. One of them has Lady Bird at the top of their list as well. Hi there, Film Spotting Original Recipe. This is Matt Singer and Allison Wilmore from Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. And we have our picks for the best film of 2017. My pick for the best of the year is Lady Bird, Greta Gerwig's outstanding film about a high school senior searching for her identity and a school to go to for college. It's a it's a genre and a type of film I have seen many times before, but maybe never done this well with this level of care and humor and warmth and intelligence. I think the screenplay by Greta Gerwig is incredible. The cast from top to bottom is great. Saoirse Ronan playing the title character is wonderful, and I also really love Laurie Metcalf as her loving but very intense mother. Not having a loving but very intense mother myself, I definitely didn't relate to that in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> but that's my pick, Lady Bird, the best film of the year. Allison, what about you? My favorite film of 2017 is The Florida Project. Uh, Sean Baker just gets better and better, and I feel like The Florida Project is an incredible work. It is both just a wonderful and insightful film about childhood featuring, you know, Brooklyn Prince as this incredible kind of like unfiltered center, uh, force of like childhood id. And it's also, I think, a really, really deft film about economic precariousness and what it is like to to live so barely, like beholding yourself so barely above homelessness. Uh, it's got incredible performances. And I think one of the greatest uses of Disney as a symbol just lurking in the background of all time. Uh, I love the ending in particular, but I think the whole film is 
devastating and wonderful and warm and very human. That's a great pick. And uh, it's been another great year for movies. And our best wishes to everybody over at the Film Spotting Mothership. And uh, here's to a great 2018. So unlike Sean Baker, Matt at least knows what year we have ahead. <laughs> More love for the Florida Project from Allison, which we love to hear, articulating many of the same reasons that we have affection for that movie and some support there for Lady Bird from Matt Singer. You guys agree? You and Matt Singer? You guys never agree, I know. Michael. We never do. Uh, and But I, I love the fact that you know Lady Bird, as specific as it is in the story of one year in the life of this high school senior played by Saoirse Ronan in Sacramento, California, you know, a lot of people are seeing it and saying, oh, I, I so related to the mother-daughter dynamic. It's how, that's how it is with my mom, blah, 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 all that. Uh, but you know, Matt and I—I I suspect that different as we are, you know, we're we're nothing like these characters. Uh, all you have to be is a human being with a semblance of a sense of humor, and I think you're in. I mean, I, that's why I saw this movie three times eagerly because I just I just simply fell in love with the sense of humor. It's everything about Lady Bird that works, which is almost everything, is it's great in the same way that Greta Gerwig's acting is great. It's just, it seems completely artless until you realize how much care and heart and generosity and craft is going into it. And that's, as you, you know, it's got a splendid screenplay. She's got great instincts as her first time solo directorial effort. I, you know, every every member of the cast, Beanie Feldstein's fantastic. She is. Everybody. Um, yeah, I'm I'm pretty boring on the subject of Lady Bird at this point. <laughs> I just happen to love it, that's all. Well, Josh, not surprisingly, had to be the contrarian and leave it off. We couldn't make it a consensus no com- pick. No complaints over Lady Bird for me. And, and it was actually one of the more enjoyable theater-going experiences. And, Tasha, we were at Lady Bird, and you may, it may have been the second time you saw it. That uh, It was. Yeah. I, I saw it at TIFF, I believe. Okay, so— I needed to go back. But that screening we were at was packed and laughing and at all the right moments. And this is it is just pure joy to sit in this movie with an audience that's also appreciated. And I've heard that's not always the case. I know, especially the first, you know, like hard to imagine serious film goers, though, like colleagues of mine, you know, see it the first weekend up on the North Shore. uh, The laughter never starts. You know, the people are expecting a more serious, earnest, Hmm. uh, humorless film and they come out and this is what I've heard from more than one person and they're, these aren't dummies I mean they're just more like I don't know what the big deal is uh, it seems slight it seemed to you know yes it's small I wouldn't call it slight no but uh, I also just think people it's specific it, it, it's beguiling and it's a very blithe comic tone it is predominantly comic but you cannot well, it's hard to understand that when the first scene is this hilariously comic <laughs> inter- I mean, exchange between right? the mother and daughter that yeah. is in a great punchline like that, that punchline in particular kind of goes to a place where you're like is is this meant to be is this meant to be a movie taken at face value the rest of the movie never goes to that place it's, it's never true. quite that broad but it's true. It, it works for me and it certainly tells you it's a comedy yeah me too no, I, I, that's a good point, though. It, it's, it almost wouldn't work if the rest, since the rest of the movie is in a different sort of register. You know? I, don't, I don't think people would emotionally connect to it in the same way if, they, if all of the movie was in that register. Because what I see 
coming up over and over and over is that sense that people have of of connection, of sympathy, of uh, emotionally understanding, particularly that mother daughter relationship. And I like I also this doesn't really reflect my relationship with my mother in any way, but the dynamics of it I think are just so so compelling, so horrifying, so sympathetic in so many ways, so nuanced. I mean, they come out of Gerwig's personal experience and they have that feeling of a personal story. I think one of the things that fascinates me about Lady Bird is that so many films that take particularly a teenage girl as their central figure can be a little myopic about sticking to that point of view, mm-hmm. about it being solely about like the internal experience of teenagerhood. And for me, the, it's the ensemble that makes this film. It's uh, Timothy Chalamet, uh, who we also saw in Call Me By Your Name, her best friend played by Odea Rush, her mother, I mean, Laurie Metcalf just gives one of the performances of the year in yep. this yeah, film. it's fantastic. And during the points of time where Lady Bird is being, uh, she has decided that her name is Lady Bird, there are points in the movie where she's a bit of a pill, where she's a, a bit shrill or annoying or self-centered. And during those moments, you can feel a sense of what you can expand out into the larger world and see all of the people around her who her actions touch and sympathize with some of them as well. Or alternately, especially in the case of her mother, they push back inward on her and you see how she came to be this person and how she came to this place emotionally. The push and pull that goes on between these characters throughout this entire film is part of what fascinated me about this, it. This might be the one thing that connects such disparate works this year is Lady Bird, Phantom Thread, Florida Project, a number of other ones that really don't make any sense together, except that the creators of these characters were not afraid to, to get a little tough with those protagonists and make you kind of question, you know, Yes, they're not acting. They're not acting admirably in the, in this instance. Mm-hmm. You know, don't we all have that moment? You know, and that's why the movie feels like it's not two dimensions. It feels like you're actually getting all three dimensions of of, of human personality. Yeah, I think I would, one of the I would ways put three billboards and the big sec both in that same category, hmm. where where the creators are really rough on the characters at times, and they're they're profoundly unsympathetic at moments and not just you know the villain of three billboards but the the protagonist as well Mm -hmm. and the protagonist of the big sick like all of these people are are people that are at times in their own head and that actively harm other people in the process of doing what they do yeah i think one of the ways too that we see greta gerwig as a director be tough with Lady Bird, the character, comes through in the cinematography. And this is something we didn't really talk about during our review, Josh, but the way she shoots Sacramento, some of those shots of the bridge that we see there and the way the sun with its glow and the way it sets over the trees, it's glorious. It's as glorious in many shots as any shot of Manhattan we've seen in a Woody Allen film, which is always undercutting the fact that Lady Bird is just consistently tearing down where she's from and the people in it. She hates this place. And yet I really feel like deliberately Gerwig is trying to show us that, you know what, there's a, there's a little bit of magic here. You can find magic just about anywhere. Yeah. And there's some here that you are willfully overlooking. Right, right. But that's, you know, she's 17. Exactly. You know, we all do it. You're an idiot. We all take it for granted. I mean, I mean, I mean, you don't know yet. And, and, and this is the thing. It's like, yeah, sure, n- n- none of the surface uh, descriptions or circumstances of the character have much to do with, like, me personally. Who cares? I mean, like, like uh, you know, I've, I mean, I, we, we were in a Sondheim musical in high school struggling and flailing, too. And that, that was, for me, that was, like, such a kind of a felicitous peril. I thought, well, I'm in, you know. I mean, I, mean, I was already in, you know, but it's like she is just such a wit 
and I, I, I don't know. I look for I look for the wit in uh, everything I can find it in, and I, I just didn't find it in uh, as much in any other film this year. Yeah. I think there's a sense uh, there's there's a parallel here between this and Phantom Thread in terms of having a protagonist with a strong backbone who is willing to push back against anything that's pushed at her, and how charming that becomes. There's a little bit of a connection with the Florida Project in terms of that that space between what her experience is and what. You your experience of her experiences, hmm, hmm. even if you're not in that moment, even if you're not thinking this is what it was like when I was an arty 17-year-old Catholic schoolgirl in Sacramento, which is experience not many of us have had, you can still have that feeling of watching her have her experience and feeling, as you say, that sort of judgment of uh, you're, you're, you're an idiot and you're going to learn, but it's kind of beautiful the moment you're in right now. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I, I like your band. Uh, with Jonah Ruiz, L'Enfance New? L'Enfance New. Uh, well, I, I saw your Thanksgiving show. My name's Ladybird. It's weird you shake hands. Yeah. I'm friends with Jenna, and she's always talking about how great your band is, so I wanted to check it out. Yeah, Jenna's hog tight. Yeah. Maybe I'll see you at the Deuce or something, huh? Sure. See you at the Deuce. Hey! I'm not paying you to flirt. I wasn't flirting. She had been. Well, how about a movie that we all agree on? The lone That's impossible. film. That's the impossible. The lone film that made all four. Singing of in our the rain list. is on this yes. list. <laughs> oh. Citizen Kane, everyone. Somehow garbage. Re-released in 2017. <laughs> the one film that did make all four of our lists is a little movie called Get Out, and we have some guest voicemail support. Hey, Adam and Josh, this is Aisha Harris from Slate's Represent Podcast, and my pick for 2017 is absolutely going to be Get Out. In my mind, I can't think of a more perfect film that came out this year. It created a movie that you had to see in theaters, not because of the special effects or the action sequences, but because of the expertly constructed twists and turns of the script that elicited such visceral responses from the audience. And I also think the cast is perfect, from Daniel Kaluuya to Katherine Keener to Allison Williams. And it's also a film that it's going to be taught in film classes and American history classes in the years to come. So it's an important film. It's an entertaining film. And I couldn't have asked for anything more in 2017. Thanks. Our thanks to Aisha, my number six film of the year, Michael, number three, Josh, number two, and Tasha Robinson, number one. Your favorite. When we're talking just now about films that stick with us throughout the entire year, this was the movie I think that I thought about most this year, Mm -hmm. the movie that that came back to me most this year, both in terms of that visceral kick in the pants uh, sting of emotion that comes up over and over. I, I, I clung to my husband in the theater as though we were watching a, a splatter movie during the early conversations that the Daniel Kaluuya character has with his, his girlfriend's family. These, these perfectly anodyne conversations about nothing much of importance. And we were clinging to each other, shuddering at all of the, all of the levels that were going on and how deeply uncomfortable they were structurally this film does to me what Nolan is trying to do with Dunkirk every every piece of this story has a place every moment is meaningful every idea comes back around again in some sort of of meaningful way there are no wasted thoughts there are no wasted moments there are moments and pieces that you don't understand the significance of until later but nothing in this movie is wasted and all of it is just built towards 
creating this this perfect ladder up to an ever more tenuous and frightening place. And then the tumble down afterwards. I, I experienced at the at the end of this movie, I experienced one of the the strongest senses of catharsis I think I experienced in the movie theater this year. Hmm. It's great. I, I mean, to see this with the, with a really really hot crowd it mm. was just wonderful, and, and it's it's just a reminder of of the pleasures of big screen movie going when you got the right crowd. And I, I think the real measure of this film's success is when when you when you hear about what Jordan Peele's original ending was like as scripted, which was a much more nihilistic sort of like, you know, we're all screwed if you're, you know, I, I mean, it was a very it was a hopeless ending, and I, you know, he got feedback uh and it was all about you know do you want to make money or don't you and you know it was that kind of cynical sort of commercial minded uh, advice but he you know he took it but he didn't take their suggestions he found the third way which is giving the audience the right kind of catharsis like you talked about and i just it's it's rousing without being dishonest you know what i mean it doesn't just sell out and i i just thought that was there was a constant sense of of kind of dread and delight right next to each other all the way through it. No, it's a it's a hell of a debut. Yeah, I mean, we've had a lot of exciting new talent to emerge in 2017 that Michael and I have talked about, Julia Ducarneau and Raw, and I think Greta Gerwig, at least as a director. But man, Peel, for me, he stands at the top because he just seems best equipped to move cinema forward in ways that are so necessary right now. And Think about what he did accomplish here. I mean, here's a movie that, yes, it's discomfortingly funny, uh, terrifically scary, and at the same time, it's connecting contemporary race relations in America to the country's history of body horror, doing this all in something that's sheerly entertaining, (laughs) that united audiences at the box office. I mean, this thing was a hit for all sorts of different reasons, of course, right? But still, it was a hit. And so he just managed to do that by the sheer force of his talent. Absolutely. And I'm glad Aisha singled out Daniel Kaluuya's performance, absolutely one of my favorite of the year. And I was just reading, we heard in part one of the show from Cameron Austin Collins from The Ringer weighing in with his favorite movie of the year. It was Good Time, Your Number 7. And in his top 10, he had Get Out, and he talked about that movie being really about those faces, and his face in particular, and the way Jordan Peele shoots it, and the way those lingering images from that film, when I think about that movie, instantly, it's about eight different images that are all different versions of his face or other faces from that film, whether it's Betty Gabriel or Lakeith Stanfield or any other of those supporting characters. And it's not just faces. The image of the sunken place, both conceptually, metaphorically, and and physically, visually on the screen, I think is one of one of the year's most important images. Mm-hmm. When that happened on screen, when that film opened up in a, a visual and conceptual way that I was not expecting, it just it literally took me to another place. But I've seen that metaphor coming up over and over again in political discussions, in social discussions, psychological discussions, as people take that image, that concept, and see how they can apply it to their own lives. It's it's just, it's such a useful tool. It's yeah. such a useful key. And yet it's it's built so seamlessly into the movie. It, it has such an impact both when it first comes up and as with so many other aspects of the film, as it slowly sort of leaches into, into your mind, as you, as you slowly unpick all of the different levels that it's operating on. I just, I love that image so much. Mm-hmm. How do you feel now? I can't move. You can't move. 
scared I'd move. You're paralyzed. Just like that day when you did nothing. You did nothing. Now, sink into the floor. Wait, 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 wait. Sink. Those are our top 10 films of 2017, parts one and two. And you can find our complete list at our website, filmspotting.net. Please send your picks or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at filmspotting. Josh is at Larson on film. Also over at filmspotting.net, you can find 12 plus years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. While you're there, vote in the current film spotting poll, maybe our most important poll of the year. Would you say the golden brick? The golden brick. That's right. It's the only one that really matters. You get a vote. This does matter. If you haven't already, we also ask that you check out the film spotting family of podcasts that includes the next picture show and film spotting svu you can find both in itunes or through your favorite podcast app what movies are coming out in wide release and limited release i don't care all i know is we're off we're off you tell us <laughs> we are off get back go to, to fandango.com or chicagotribune.com or wherever you get your movie information you're not getting it here you could go to Michael Phillips or Tasha Robinson. Michael, where can people find more of your work? ChicagoTribune.com slash movies. And on Twitter, you know, Phillips Tribune, as I optimistically hitch my wagon to the Tribune star. Love it. See? <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Tasha? Uh, you can find me writing about film and television over at the, the forbidden television we do not mention on the show. <laughs> nope. Over at TheVerge.com. Uh, this was my top 10. You can find my top 15. Uh, so uh, a little bit little bit more than this uh, over at TheVerge.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. And I podcast with the crew that you heard all three of uh, tonight on the show at various points at Next Picture Show. You can hear the four of us discussing Mother and Blade Runner 2049 and three billboards and ladybird each one in a different episode with a different pairing of an older film that it has some kind of connection with we'll be doing phantom thread in the new year maybe josh we can listen to three billboards together and try to heal yeah i I think i've had enough billboards in my life (laughs) please don't heal that was the most entertaining uh film film conversation i've seen in a long time great Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halkren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. When you're on a break from Film Spotting and we're off, do us a favor. Spend that time by giving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us reach new listeners. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Tasha. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener-supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.